But I know where to start They tell me I'm too young to understand They say I'm caught up in a dream But life will pass me by if I don't open up my eyes Well, it's fine by me So wake me up when it's all over Get along with the Covering the intelligence community is mosaic. It's a puzzle. You protect each piece because you don't know what piece someone is missing. Wow! And a merry bah humbug to all of you from TV Marti. The voice of Cuba. An operation that we used against the Soviets during the Cold War, its counter-operation is being used in the United States. We cannot run an intelligence business on that kind of basis. And part of it's secret, and I'm going to say that it stays secret. There, you know, there's all of Soros-funded, open society-funded art organizations in Eastern Europe uh, that all happened in the 90s. That's the funding that starts before the the market funding, it's the Ford Foundation funding, right? It's Triangle Arts Trust. But existing foundations like Ford have their limitations, and officially at least, entirely independent of the CIA. Why not create new foundations? Agency among agency, foundation upon foundation, that is how you build a mosaic. First, CIA itself set up a number of dummy foundations, calling them by impressive-sounding and meaningless names. Today is really a chance for global citizens to come together and let those leaders know the time for action is now. This amphitheater is actually going to be filled with fully vaccinated activists. I thank you very much for this opportunity to address the Davos agenda. A new global deal, a new model for global governance. Global governance. Did you hear that? What truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. They're decimating the State Department. As a friend of mine who was the number two guy at the State Department said, you can go up on the seventh floor and holler and hear an echo. In a, a club in Georgetown and talk to, like, real spooks. And, you know, people in the intelligence community and, and the State Department and journalists. I'd like to think that what we do on Homeland that's different from what people in the real CIA or in Spymasters does is that we are trying to give the poetic version. But this year it was all about, you know, the distrust between the administration and, and the intelligence world and, um, and the intelligence community was suddenly kind of allying itself with journalists. Probably too irreverently say, Carrie worked for me. Okay. Minus the sex, the drugs, and the bipolar thing, but Carrie worked for me. And, and frankly, that's true. I'm touched by the patriotism of Brennan, who I met, who I went into his office. Why did he bring me in his office? Why? Because John Owen Brennan embraces all his conduits. 
Coming this Christmas, the docu-series. Enjoy the show. The delay, sorry for the delay. I've been having a couple of issues, but I've also been working very hard today. I had a lot to do. Um, family reached out and were, were provided me something that makes sense. Now, all of us saw this um, COVID unfold and desperate times call from, for desperate measures, right? People decide to do things that they would not normally do. And this onion is not looking good. Again, I have to say I'm so grateful for President Trump listening to his longtime friend, Mayor Attorney General and <laughs> Prosecutor and Rico Godfather, Rudy Giuliani. Um, so I was discussing, you know, with Millie earlier about a matter and a foundation popped up and this foundation led to a company and that company led to back to the operations and other individuals. See, I knew the existence of this company because they are responsible for many, many deaths, and um, but you never can nail them. And what I discovered today was horrifying. So I didn't expect it so soon, especially not in this trajectory. But because of the desperation and because there were really good people out there fighting and they were doing it fucking wrong. The only way to escape tyranny is to embrace the institution that houses your foundations. You do it by the book just because they play dirty, you don't. And so <clears throat> aside from a lot of information, because an educated citizen is an active one and a participating one, you know, I always wondered how it is that so many died in the nursing homes. And so um, I kind of looked at some code and kind of looked at some things. And I can say that I spent maybe 40 minutes grieving, grieving that all these people passed away and it comes back to the same damn people. And all this could have been avoided if people would have just put their egos down for a moment. And when I saw this code, <laughs> I was thinking, there's no way. It was the cots, again. And no one would understand why. Why it wasn't working. Why there were issues. Why, why, why. And all I can say is, I am so sad for they really don't know what they're doing. And as I was digging into the foundation that I found that's linked to this company, I realized that this company is also in my periphery via people that I consider family. Um, 
not close to them, not, but they're targeting people that I consider family. And now I see, you know, if I have access to a fancy computer, (laughs) um, so others have, um, access to a bootleg version. They always tried to copy it. They needed to reverse engineer it, but it's never the same. So it's hidden in some mind somewhere, right? But it was, it was, it was shocking to process this information because, you know, I know a lot of people like to go down rabbit holes, but this is not even, I mean, you, you think of the kids and the experimentation. I mean, I'm going to give you something that you, that you might not like. Do you guys remember in the 80s and the 90s some really fancy playing cards? Do you guys remember them? I just want, I, this is horrific, but, you know, how would you know? Do you remember playing cards in the 80s that were just insane? People were going nuts for them. Do you guys remember them? I'm going to show you some of them. And then I want you to think what these cards were based on. I want you to think of my old shows about Epstein. I want you to think of what he was investing in. I want you to think of, you know, how gruesome some of these things are, right? And then think, you know, why would anyone, you know, because I I remember as a child that they were um, quite... Oh my gosh, why is my why is my system freezing? I won't name the company, just leave it. That's going on an article. Um damn, just give me a moment. All right, I'm back. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Then we'll do one with part two, two where we're opening box two, three, four, and then four and five will be together. So that's four parts, guys. So make sure to like and subscribe. But okay. we'll get this going for you. Yeah, we're doing a number one for our uh, first opening. Don't worry, guys. We have the nice leaf protectors right here. Bought these off of Amazon. So they fit your PSA graded card, so you can put them in there to protect them. As soon as they arrive, you, like make sure there's no scratches in them and stuff. And it just keeps them nice and clean. Yeah, right there, that middle one. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <clears throat> All right. Let's that open. You got it? Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what ways. Okay. Next one is Brad right here, 1985, glossy. Ooh, PSA nine. Look at that. I hope the lighting's good for you guys. I found the brightest uh, part in the house that I could do it in. There's that. So we'll have a nine stack going ten right here for those lucky tens we'll get and everything else over there. So that's that's good. That's a nine. Okay, here we go. Nineteen eighty-five. Weird, windy. It's a good sticker. Uh, Mr. D's favorite. Ooh, PSA seven. But hey, great card, great card, you know? I'm happy Mr. D has got that. So um, for those who are just tuning in, um, we sent this off a while back, and 
most of these will be Mr. D if they're from 1985. If they're from any other year to like modern, they'll be mine. So this is a Potty Scotty glossy. And these are all glossies except for the more modern-ish ones. So let's see. Ooh, a P. I don't... This yeah, one, but this one... That one got a 9ST, itchy So richie. maybe they just... They're the exact... I don't even get that. April showers, 9 Looks pretty perfect, besides the fact that it's a little off-centered, but, um... It should've been like a 9OC. Yeah, an OC. But or I mean, even an 8. Sometimes I grade them pretty hard. Well, I would think so, because Atom Bomb's a huge card. Even though these, these things seem horrific, you know, snotty this, fat cat that, um... There were artists, and one of them was actually quite um, controversial, you know, on his cartoons on Islam, and these were actually quite graphic. <clears throat> and the one thing about uh, Little St. James Island is that they gave nicknames like that, snotty this, snotty that. And in Ethiopia, where they ran their AI um, programs, that was also nicknames that they gave the kids, depending on, you know, how, um, how the kids would respond. It makes you sick when you think about it, right? Uh, they were creepy. Uh, they were disgusting. As kids, I mean, I remember I had garbage pail kids. Um, I would trade them too. <sighs> Who would have thought, right? So disappointing. Who would have thought? And then, a company that you would understand as being um, just an incredible company because of its ability to um, bypass, I would say bypass, <laughs> bypass um, cell towers and the internet for communication. Who would have thought they would have captured that company, they would have captured it because obviously they needed it and slotted under a foundation. And the purpose, the purpose of this uh, company was to simply cause destruction. Do you remember the car accident where someone just burned up by himself? Oh, there's a few of those, right? Same company. And then all the elderly that died in nursing homes. Same company. I, that's all I have to say on that for now, um, because I'm still going through all the data. But one thing you should know is that these people, aside from the fact that they're sick as can be, sick people, sick, sick people, they also love to rub it in. Let me show you a video. Can't believe someone also had it. Please enjoy. But not quite as much as financier Jeffrey Epstein. Let's go! Jeff was a high school math teacher until he traded his blackboard for the big board in 1976, eventually launching his own exclusive finance firm for billionaire clients. But he just couldn't keep out of the classroom. So when he was shopping for a new house, he bought himself an entire schoolhouse. Remember that schoolhouse was the schoolhouse that William Barr's dad was headmaster of. I'm just giving you some more information.
and transformed it into the largest single residence in all of Manhattan at a whopping 51,000 square feet. Oh, yeah. The school cost about $20 million, and he's dropped $10 million just renovating it. It has incredible bells and whistles, closed-circuit televisions, a heated sidewalk out front, so the snow melts. But only one man truly rules the Wall Street skies. Because the former school teacher turned billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, one private plane won't do. He's got a small fleet. A Gulfstream 4, a Cessna, and a Boeing 727 with... Did you hear that? A Boeing. Do you know how many people you can fit on that? Again, a Boeing. Wolf. He knows all about that Boeing. Of course, an in-flight trading room. He has a Boeing 727. I'm just wondering now, what do you need a commercial-size airliner for? Believe us, it comes in handy when you've got powerful friends to fly around. When Bill Clinton organized a week-long tour of Africa in 2002, Jeff gave him a ride in his personal 727 and took actors Kevin Spacey and Chris Tucker along for the trip. Now, for former President Clinton, it was a chance to investigate the problems of AIDS in Africa, and for Epstein, it was a chance to hang out with some of his big-shot friends. Jet-setting with Bill? All in a day's work for Wall Street moguls. Wall Street wunderkin Jeffrey Epstein digs science. But he doesn't just have his own chemistry set in the basement. To satisfy his inner Einstein, Jeff's got his own staff of world-class scientists. And he gives them $20 million a year to do whatever experiments they want. Jeffrey Epstein was actually once a math teacher, but he's so interested in math and science that he has a team of scientists that he funds. You know, they'll just say there's something that they want to study, and he just writes a check. The platoon of scientists that Epstein has aren't just guys off the street. He's got a Nobel Prize winner, a professor at Harvard. But bankrolling your own Bunsen burner patrol? Money manager Jeffrey Epstein seems to think so. He unwinds in his $6.8 million Palm Beach Villa. But no Wall Street Island hopper grabbed a sweeter spread than our friend Jeffrey Epstein. With an estimated annual take of $75 million, he had more than enough cash to buy his own piece of the Virgin Islands. Jeffrey Epstein owns a 70-acre private island called Little St. James. It used to be a resort. And now it's sort of lovingly called Little St. Jeff. Why not? It's all his. Yeah, boy! But when Jeff is back in the States, he retreats to the Santa Fe Mega Ranch he bought back in 1993. Epstein is said to have the largest home in New Mexico. His property is 7,500 acres. Can I have it like that? You got it like that. All of his homes all over the country and the world are equipped with trading screens. So he can basically just wake up in the morning and start trading. Private islands, holiday mega homes, typical vacation options in the wonderland called Wall Street. Just because you have all the money in the world, you can't buy happiness if you, if you don't have that special someone in your life. These guys were sort of the math whizzes and the science nerds of high school, and they probably didn't get as much action as, say, the high school quarterback. Let's go! 
But today, these guys have something way more alluring than sex appeal. Dollar signs. So it's always been there. It's always been there. Chris Tucker. You haven't heard that, have you? There's a lot of other names. I I urge you to um, take a look. Interesting thing that I found today. Um, well, it was sent to me by uh, someone I work with. Um, I was like, so here's someone else talking. So Saul and Nuisance, Princella Smith, myself, and a number of other people who work for Carl Rove and Eric Gillespie are making calls on Snyder's behalf this next week. All chippery going to Africa. 747s. Chris Tucker. Didn't hear about that name, did you? Thought he was just a funny guy. It's the most <clears throat> salacious things that many will seem to understand. Now, that makes you sick. You know, in 2020, you were kind of awake. You kind of saw a few things with a different eye. Things started to make a little bit more sense. Is how to all of these weird happenings were happening. You started to uh, look at things differently. See things a little bit differently. And anyone that's, you know, like I said, there's really just the commies and Americans. It is one of the most horrific things ever. You know what someone should ask themselves? How did this happen on my watch? Right? That's what you should be saying to yourself. How did this happen on my watch? There's no way this should have happened. It should have been right there. But then taking you back to the garbage pail kids, we all know that comes from a company that deals with children and raising children, right? Our school system. Oh, how many tops for schools have we done? And then you have to think about Teach America. You know, Daniel J. Jones, the guy who wrote out the whole CIA torture ship, right? The guy who is um, being an in-between, between an attorney, right? A senator, Congress, right? Feinstein's right-hand man, Opened up his own Penn Quarterly group, funneled money into Fusion GPS, and they all funded this, you know, so nicely, so openly, right? They all work together. Did you, I, I, I've talked about Daniel J. Jones before. They even made a movie about him. So fucking weird. And um, he began his career as a teacher. He went through a program called Teach America. So we have a lot of things that are associated with our youth circulating. Now, while the first thing we come to mind is, oh my gosh, we were raping them, experimenting on them. Like I told you, the majority of the human trafficking that happens isn't for their enjoyment, sexual pleasure, or sustenance. It's for experiments. The one rule and covenant in all of medicine is you test on children because if the children can have it where they're underdeveloped, then the adults can. So getting pediatric trials are supposed to be the most difficult. So if you look at it, one of the biggest proponents within the agency and active within this uh, Christopher Steele dossier, aside from Brennan, aside from Peter Strzok, aside from agency heads and people that you know, 
is Daniel J. Jones. And he began his trip down this, you know, career as a student. And so we talk about all of these um, foundations. Nobody looks at the foundations. You know, you're giving your donations to these foundations, these funds. And what's insane is, is that those funds are the ones that fund all of these things that are happening. As everything unfolds, I want you to think of um, self-sabotage. Now, this happens to everyone at some point in their life, and they learn not to do it. But as a, na- as a nation, we have self-sabotage. And you guys know I absolutely love Russell Brand, right? I adore him. So here he is talking about how he stopped self-sabotaging. Take a listen. Oops. Sabotaging ourselves together. We've got to stop this self-sabotage. What causes self-sabotage? I suppose it must be a latent, unexpressed, unexamined, unrealized belief that you're not good enough and that you're not worthy of success, whether that's in the field of relationship, education, personal development, profession, and self-sabotage in my own life, because let me tell you, I'm... I've been a self-saboteur master. These are my experiences of self-sabotage. I've had the same pattern my whole life when I think about it. There was times where I was really, really popular at school, then so unpopular that that just, just throw me right out of the school. It's happened just several times in my professional life as well, like sort of chaos and sort of excitement and then madness and dis- destruction. Now, I think what brings it about in me is a lack of trust in people and a lack of belief in myself. The reason that I'm an ardent supporter and uh, evangelist for the 12-step technique of self-awakening is that it's a program for living. People say, I don't want a program, but we already have a program. If you're experiencing a lot of self-sabotage, that will be coming from your embedded programming, the programming of your family, the programming of your uh, class and gender and race and or economic background, all of this programming realizes itself through us. Now, let's say if you self-sabotage in a relationship, that could be through being unfaithful or criticizing, or it could be from te- like getting too clingy too quickly, all of that kind of stuff. I would say in the area of relationship, it's about projection, projection and attachment to an external, uh, in this case, person instead of a kind of uh, remedying of the inner malady. What I mean to say is this self-sabotage must be that I don't like myself. I don't think I'm worthy of success. If I don't address that, then I will, have, I will develop a pattern of self-sabotage in the world of relationships or in the world of my work. How I stop self-sabotage is these very, very clear techniques. One, I really watch my thinking like I try not to, for, I try not to forget that I am not my thinking. Two, I surround myself with people that are further down the spiritual path than me. I find mentors and I listen to them. For example, what about Michael Beckwith from the Agape Church, who said you have to break your vow to mediocrity. That's good, isn't it? Like if you think about it, how many like how I experience my own mediocrity is like say if I'm about to be critical or overly dependent on my wife, I sort of feel it rise up. I think, this is part of your mediocrity to do this. See if you can let go of it. 
or if I'm that's where I can that's where I I suppose have problems being critical and blaming that's a, an area where I like I venture towards self-sabotage because I foul the arena of my life I foul the environment of my life sorry about the use of the word foul there it's a bit disgusting isn't it uh, like but what I mean to say is like we we live in these relationships and if I don't treat people properly and correctly, then it's, you know, it all comes back at us. Stuff that we used to think of as spiritual is kind of can be seen as pretty rational. Kindness and love, forget the concept of karma, you're just creating surfaces around yourself that are bearing the sheen of your adulation. The way to stop self-sabotage is to address what's behind it. Something in you is trying to communicate with you. Something is not being heard, some inner voice. If you address the self-esteem issues, the purpose issues, the behavioural and relationship issues, Firstly with yourself, with other experts, sometimes in support groups, and with a declared objective and a willingness to bear witness to yourself, to stay awake and stay aware when those behaviours fire up. I still have all of the patterns that I've always had, the patterns of self-destruction, the patterns of self-obsession, the patterns of over-reliance on others. But now, because I've done, been given and taught a lot of spiritual techniques, when the, when the old engine fires up, I can sort of see it, like, oh, I'm about to do that thing. In the past, I used to not see it. I used to sort of feel it. I used to feel the energy rise up in me, of like, oh, I'm going to tell someone to f*** off or something mad or cause a load of chaos. And then I'd think, I'd sort of enjoy yielding to it, like enjoy the sort of feeling of being flooded by madness. And then it would only be, I'd sort of come round like about 24 hours later and go, oh, no, shit, I've ruined that job. Oh, bollocks. I remember walking out of a photo shoot once for some sort of cool magazine in New York. It was so cool, I can't even remember it. But I'm not being sarcastic. It was too cool to stay in my mind. There was a lot of, I don't know, if I'm very thin. Anyway, like, I was doing this photo shoot. I goes, I want to leave by five. In fact, I'm giving myself a 5 p.m. cutoff, right? It was in the meatpacking district of New York. It was, that was, if it's not cool now, it was cool then. And, like, um, I, uh, like... Everyone was like, no, we need longer than that to shoot these multiple setups. I was doing the cover of this magazine or whatever. And I just went, I ain't doing it, I'm going. And I remember the atmosphere of everyone I work with and all the people on the shoot, the sort of feelings of like, sort of the bad taste and sort of dismay and sort of disappointment. But I'm going to try not to do things like that anymore. I was self-sabotaging. Because this is what I thought. I was like, if they really want me on that magazine, they'll just do whatever I want. And they just went, no, forget it then, man. And then I just wasn't in that magazine. But... Look, there are more important things to life than being in magazines. Almost everything in life is more important than being in magazines. But the fact was, is that I didn't, this was, you know, 10 years ago, but I didn't, like, know how to behave then. Nowadays, I think I would either, well, probably I wouldn't go to the shoot in the first place, wouldn't agree to do it. But if once you have agreed to do it, well, I guess you've got to behave differently. So, self-sabotage, watch your patterns, find mentors, develop a program. These are just some of the things you can do to change you. Don't see the self-sabotage as a negative thing. See it as an inner voice waiting to be heard. There is wisdom in this information. Wisdom in this information. There is wisdom in that information. And the wisdom is, you know, we have to understand that uh, many people self-sabotage. And it's not just a person thing. It's a nation thing. We were too busy, too inundated with whatever life was giving us to look at what was going on and how it was going on. You know, and that 
actually falls to something that we call a paradox, right? There's a lot of paradoxes in life. Now, when it comes to self-sabotage, it's the shadow. Uh, you know, there are things that we don't, um, it, it was actually something that Carl Jung talked about. And it's basically this, this thought that the things that irritate us the most about other people uh, are often things that we don't like to admit about ourselves. So if you're like <clears throat> annoyed at people that, you know, um, I don't know, can't decide what to eat for dinner, right? It's most likely because in actual fact, you're the same way and hence why you're annoyed that they're not making the decision because you don't like to make the decision. So you get really, really angry. Um, you know, if you um, go around uh, disrespecting people or being nasty to people, right? Um, because... Um, if you feel that people are not listening to you or they're disrespecting you, let's put it this way. Oh my gosh, everyone's just like so disrespectful. Oh my gosh, everyone's just so nasty to me. You know, it's probably because you're the one dishing the dirt, the nasty. It's a mirror aspect. It's that we tend to project the uncomfortable things about ourselves, like being lazy, um, being, uh, you know, uh, destructive, uh, to other people. And as a nation, we have done that. And we, what we project out, what we resonate on is how we have this shadow. Because the weirdest thing is, is this in this day and age, we have become more connected to people than any other time in your known history. Any other time. And what you see is that during that connection, right, with all these people, there's a lot of malice. There are things that people will say online behind a computer and not say it to your face. It actually just comes out, this evil thing. But here's a paradox. The more connected you are with your world, the more isolated you are. How is that even possible? That makes absolutely no sense. You're becoming one with the world. You can connect with people, millions of people at once. And yet, the more you connect with the world, the more insignificant you feel because you can see the enormousness of it. Therefore, in that little, little end of it, you feel, I'm not being heard. What's the point of doing anything? I'm just going to sit here and vent my frustration and say things I wouldn't normally say because no one's going to listen. I'm going to make zero difference. It doesn't matter. And see, this is why social media has poisoned to the core people's ability to be heard. Take it back to the 1800s, right? Abraham Lincoln was being sabotaged by his own general, right? You, you remember that, right? His own general was sabotaging him. His own right-hand man was attacking him. And uh, he was like, what am I doing? We're going here. We're doing this. We're fighting wars. The people saw things happening, but the people then could be heard. 
because then, you know, it was a small population. And they knew that if they went down to the town hall and be like, yo, that guy's leaving his shit all over my yard. You better fix it. You knew someone was going to listen. If you were upset about the new taxes and you sat down at the bar with your friends and you talked about this new tax that your, that your mayor just passed, all of you would turn up and you'd be like, yo, we're the voters, man. The law says that you can't remove me. Yeah, watch us. We're going to like take the signatures. We're going to remove. And you got heard. So why do you think today you can't be heard? Why is it that you have this idea that your voice cannot be heard? That's the question you should ask yourself. Why is it that you believe with all this connection, with all this communication, that your voice is drowned out? It's because that's what they tell you. This is what they tell you. They tell you that you cannot be heard. They tell you that you're insignificant. You're nothing but a worm. You are no one. I am the greatest. You must listen to me because I have a bigger voice and you are nothing. Right? This is what they tell you. <sighs> I have to reload this. Please tell me that this is better because I saw that you were complaining about the audio. Is this better? So... They have been telling you how insignificant you are because you must look up to these idols that they put on pedestals in the early 1900s. Look at this superstar. She's important. You're not. Look at this basketball player. He can dribble a ball and put it in a basket. I know you can go fix the electricals in his house, but he's more important. See, pay attention. They're the ones that have an important voice because they're on camera. They're on magazines. They have a title. They have a tiara. And you are nothing but a peon. So again, as technology evolves and we're connected to millions of people, you feel more alone and more silenced than ever. I urge all of you to take a look back. I can tell you, I've had some very, very, very fiery conversations with people that are on those magazines, that are on those TV sets, that are those titles and tiaras that are the most important. And they are so far knocked off their pedestal right now. Why? Because of you. What you guys have done is incredible. And what you have to understand, because I know you guys saw it in all your groups too. Everyone wanted to be the leader because their voice was more important than another. Everyone wanted to be first because, what? I can do it too. And I'm better at this. And I'm this. And I'm this. And it's like, no. United, we are like this. See, the beauty of being different is that every single part of you completes a part of me and every single part of me completes a part of you. And what's important right now is not your titles and tiaras. It's not your personas. Onto, oh, look, so-and-so is having so-and-so on. No one gives a fuck. So they're on. How are they helping you? Did they help you pay your bills? Did they help put food in your mouth? Did they give you one step or take your hand and walk with you so that you can remedy the wrongs? No, then they're not important. I know this is going to sound a little bit crass, 
but, and it's a little bit, it's, it's actually a sad story too, believe it or not. Hmm. I was, um, I was a teen. I, obviously I was on vacation. I was in Greece. Um, I was waiting on the couch dressed up. I was wearing like this black top that was chiffon and I was wearing like these really nice pants that were super tight, you know, crop top, bell bottoms and my Wehrmacht boots, right? These German Nazi type boots. I used to wear Doc Martens in those. Yeah, I did. Anyway, and I'd done my makeup up. I looked amazing. And I woke up in the morning. I fell asleep waiting for my friend to come get me. And I was just devastated. I was like, oh my gosh, did I like sleep on this couch? Like this is so, and I was so pissed because I wanted to go out, right? I wanted to go out and I wanted to go to the club and I was supposed to go out because, you know, uh, the weekday was going to be a day away and then I'd have to uh, go down to Athens where I was attending an American university and I was working at the embassy. So I was uh, really, really upset. And, um, my dad was like, who are you waiting for? And I was like, I was waiting for Costa. And he freaking didn't even call. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. He didn't do this. And he's like, all right, so tell me, um, is he your boyfriend? I was like, no, he's just my friend. And, and he's like, wait, is that long haired guy? And I was like, yeah. So I was upset. My father said, when you get upset that someone doesn't come get you, someone doesn't talk to you, right? You have to think, what did they contribute to you? He's like, so what was he going to do? Oh, he was going to take me because it's far on his motorcycle. Turns out he didn't come get me because he died um, in a motorcycle crash, actually, that evening, two blocks away from where I was, which is terrible. But, uh, you know, in that, in that horrible um, moment, I also learned a valuable lesson aside from losing a friend at that young age to his helmet. Nonetheless, uh, the helmet was expired or something. Um, it was what he told me. He was like, you need to assess what, but I was really pissed. Like, I can't even explain to you. I put so much effort into that, you know, outfit. Right. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't use those nice words. Like, is he your boyfriend? He, he was a little bit more, more rough around the edges, my dad. Um, but he did also, um, teach me, which was necessary, um, how to respond, uh, to situations, which I'm not very good at, at all times. So, when we're confronted with a situation where someone makes us feel less important, because I can tell you that that is one of the most ugliest feelings. I felt like that. I felt like, you know, when we went down there, I had people telling me, who is this Millie? She works for Alex Jones, like, oh, or this or that, or who the hell are you telling us what to do? Right. And a lot of people that say things and they're not being listened to, is because it's a really ugly feeling when it consumes you. And so I want every single one of you who think that, you know, I have no voice. No one's listening to me. This is happening to me. Uh, this happened. My kid, my mom, my dad, you know, all the government is making me do this. I have to do this. I have to, you don't have to do anything. And your voice is always as important as the next one. It is one of the most important tools you have, and it is one of the tools that is used to communicate with others.
And, you know, in this day and age, if you actually look at it, what Carl Jung said is that, you know, your voice is your shadow, meaning the volume of your voice is what is dependent on how easily they can hack your shadow. And one would say, well, I don't talk loud. I'm actually soft-spoken, right? Not just me, like you say it. Um, but in actual fact, you feel like it's your voice. Like I'm not important enough. Oh, yes, you are. Because all of us collectively can be heard from space. Collectively, just, just saying collectively can be heard from space. So this paradox of connecting with so many people and not being heard is because you can see that so many thousands of people are talking and you're just one drop in that universe. And think about it. Let's pretend you think that so-and-so on TV or that has this podcast or newspaper or, you know, freaking senator is important. Now I want you to zoom out and look at the universe as a whole, like float out into space. Do you see that motherfucker from where you are? No. And if they're by themselves talking, you definitely don't see him. But when you collectively talk together and you're in space, you can hear that collection of voices. I hope you understand just how important it is because there's a lot of stuff I want to share. I was actually on the phone with one of the attorneys today talking about something and I ran into a video and I was like, I'm not going to show this. I'm not going to share this because people will understand just how devastating it is. And when I said boot on your face, I really meant it. And when I said you know, you have to see it to believe it. People get angry when they see results of what I said. How dare you? You could have said something. Again, I'm only one voice. So the common sense for you to be is like, she's only one voice. If we were to say it in sync, if we were to complete each other, as we have been doing for over a year and a half, filing these cases, standing up for each other, standing collectively. We're giants if we're together. So one person, one person speaking up is never good enough. One person, oh, look, I'm going to save America. Watch me do this. Dunk. No, that's not how it works. That's how it works on the TV set. That's how it works in the television, right? That's how it works in the movies. That's how it works in the orchestration. There's never one guy that comes out with a sword and kills everyone because the guy with the sword had someone polish that sword. That sword was forged by someone. Someone collected the ore to make it. The shoes were polished or tied or put together in leathers and stitched by someone else. The food he ate so that he could draw the sword was with other people. So what they're not telling you is that that person that draws the sword has an army behind them. And so everyone together collectively is that voice. You don't have to pay someone to run around and talk, right? You don't have to pay someone to march <laughs> and pretend you're a patriot party, right? You don't have to pay them. You don't have to, you know, be 
They do it because they're saying the same thing that you are. And you're amplifying. If you remember, President Trump was successful in all his rallies and every single thing he did. Why? Because all the people that flock there thought the same thing. All the people that flock there felt the same way. All the people that were there wanted the same actions and therefore they were loud. In the Capitol, they knew you would come. I actually thought maybe Washington, D.C. will sink because that's how many people were there. Millions of people from around the United States. And I can tell you there was one, two, three, four different operations going on. One stood by and watched and used that operation for cover to do something. Another one was deployed to counter the other operation and that counter operation was also used to mask another operation. All on your backs, all on your voice. You were so effective. President Trump isn't one man that everyone adores. Oh, I love President Trump. Shit, he's got balls of steel. But his mouth, his words, and his ability to act with his hands and feet, he was hogtied throughout his whole administration. Everything he did was because of you. Everything he accomplished was because of you. If you wouldn't have said the same thing, if you wouldn't have pushed for the same thing, he wouldn't be able to do shit. He'd be like Reagan. He'd say nice things and all this other shit would be happening. So once again, it's really, really important that you understand just how intricate and yet so simple, the notion of we the people is. It's intricate because everyone has to be on the same page. But you can't make them be on the same page. They have to want to be on that same page. They have to feel like they want it. They don't have to be fanaticized. They have to say, I want this. I want that. I want these three things. One, two, three. And the guy next to him says, I want these three things. One, two, three. And these. One, two, three. And this. One, two, three. And suddenly, it's an array of people feeling the same thing. But what do we have? Actually, taking to a conversation that I literally said to someone that many people, you know, may consider, you know, someone important. It's all your fault. Why are you trying to take lead? I don't care about any of the fucking drama going around. Right now, everyone needs to be grown up. They all need to sit down in a fucking room and they need to put their heads together and eat some humble pie and shut up and put the people first. You're all doing it wrong and you're fucking shit up. It's called self-sabotage and I'm tired of it. So... I, I think I actually said it to a few people. <laughs> just one. <laughs> because <clears throat> it's, it's disheartening. President Trump said he was giving power back to the people. He had no idea what he was in for. He had no idea that those that were good also felt the same way that those that were bad were. Which is, people are way too stupid to let them pick anything. People are way too stupid to do things. 
And so, you know, in Texas, right, the Texas group, we've got about 10 people running for Congress there, right? They're all filing. 10. And they're all going to fucking win. All of them. While we're all fixing elections, they're like, all right, if they're going to be playing this game, we're going to be playing this game. We're going to be playing this game. We're going to be playing this game, and we are going to do this. We are going to do this. Uh, do you have an elected, uh, an open, there's 30 attorney general races. Pretty sure in every state we got at least one lawyer or someone who knows a lawyer that maybe, you know, wants the same shit. Guess what? We can get that fucker elected because we don't need the GOP to tell us. We don't need the DNC to tell us. And guess what? New Jersey just proved to you, you don't even need fucking money. You need to walk around and you need to be able to bring both sides of the aisle together and say, look, this gas prices is fucking shed. This stupid segregation and calling people, you know, minorities and weaklings, everyone's strong. This, these, these policies are killing our city or our state or whatever. Let's do this. And so as you, as, as, as I see that evolve, and I know a lot of people are like, Hey, you want to jump onto this call? Want to jump on? I don't need to do anything. You've got this. I'm right behind there, just like the rest of America, to just prop you up. You don't need to get a campaign fund. Fuck it. You don't need it. You don't need campaigns. You could just say, hey, you want me to get elected? Can you buy me a billboard? That's your donation. So you don't have any FEC filing. You don't have shit to file, right? Hey, you want me to get elected? Can you like maybe print out 50 t-shirts? That'd be great. Hey, you want to get me elected? Can you make some QR code stickers so we could stick them around and, you know, hey, you want to get me elected? You have a bar. Can I hold an event there? Thanks. And hey, you want to donate some drink? Boom, boom, boom. Suddenly you're fucking elected. You've got bigger events than anyone else. Hey, you got a friend that has a friend that's like got a band or a local thing? Yeah, let's do it. See what they mistaken. What they mistaken is that they're important. Sure. You have responsibilities. Sure. You this. But I want you to take a step back and just think, shit, where were we in 2020? Right after the elections. Lots of media, lots of, we're going to do this and release this and we're going to do, uh, nah, nah. And, oh, uh, my digital soldiers, please keep going. Q theories going here and there. And what did you get while you were watching it? What did that, what did it put food on your family's table? Did it fix your elections? Did it help go through data? Did it give you anything? Did it provide you something that you could say, I got this? Something stupid like, um, I learned how election machines work. Did you really get that? Did you make any change by just observing and, and, and just being stuck to the TV like you were at 9-11? No, because you've been groomed and trained to be like that. You have been groomed and trained to be told how to feel, to be led down rabbit holes, and how to enjoy the show. And it's not, it's not your fault, but then on the other hand, there's, you know... I mean, how could you do it? The minute you stepped out of that womb, you were, you were being groomed. And the thing is, your parents were also grooming you because they didn't know they were already groomed. It's so sad. But now we're at a point where we can stand back and say, damn, this is really messed up. The only way we win is by making people smarter. 
the only way we win is by um, giving them an education and teaching them things, right? That's the only way we win. You know, in the morning when my daughter left, she, you know, she does AP history. And I, I was telling her, you know, the Hindus didn't convert to Islam because they wanted to escape Hinduism, right? That was part of their culture, their gods and the arms. And that's part of their history. They don't want to run away from it because it's in their history. She goes, yeah, mom, but I have to answer the question like that because the book says that Islam liberated them. I'm like, right? She knows because I'm not programmed and I can see things. But I can also have conversations with people that have been programmed. Obviously, my tolerance is very low right now, so I can't really do the whole woke speak, you know? <laughs> I, I, You know, it's like a minute, and then I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Like, no. Uh, so my tolerance is lower. But she was stressing about her test, and she's like, damn, I have midterms. I got to study. So she's like studying away tonight, right? And I was like, well, you know, it's all about dates, but you have to remember why that date's important. That's how you remember a date. You know, you have to make a memory with that date. And, you know, she was like, yeah, I, like I have to learn about the day that all these women million march. And I was like, that's your fucking history. Are you kidding me? I just walked away. And I was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to go work. <laughs> and I thought to myself, damn. It's not just how we're groomed, but it's how we take that information and run with it. Um, how we can make that information work for us and how we remember things. So for myself, when I asked myself, because I've been very sad after about like just, just a little while ago, I was kind of like digesting what I've just seen. I thought to myself, how the hell did I not remember this? You know? I understand why now. Usually we forget things that are extremely painful to us, right? And um, all of us forget things that are extremely painful to us in just general. Because I, I believe that this, this was, um, this is extremely painful because it was happening and obviously no one knew about it, but there were people, this is where the sad part is. It's not so much the deaths. Okay. It's not so much the deaths, but it's so much that there were people there that were supposed to care for them. Doctors and nurses and CNAs and nursing home aides and, and none of them said a word. That's the devastating portion. That's where you want to tune that out because you knew that if you remembered it, you'd be like, fuck it, burn that bitch down. Because these are people that still go home and cook their dinner and pretend nothing happened. Lives on their hands. So saying that, there were um, whistleblowers that appeared on Steve Bannon's show and they were talking about the origins of coronavirus 
But before we see that, let's remember this. And I played it a long time ago. And, you know, you're going to hate me. You're going to be like, well, you talked about HIV and malaria and hydroxychloroquine when coronavirus came out. But you didn't come right out and say it. Hey, they're going to all give you AIDS. Now, I want you to transport your ass back to March of 2020 before the shutdown, right? And tell me if I said that, if you would be here today. If I said that, because I gave you all that information, I spoke about hydroxychloroquine way before everyone knew what the fuck that was. So again, before you say, oh, you think I didn't tell the people or try to communicate with the people, you know, before the vaccine even came out, I talked about it because I remember that. And, you know, you can be angry at the bad people right? You can be angry because you're like, oh, you're bad and you don't know just how bad, but you're reveling in that evil and it's going to eat you up. But the thing I didn't remember was the people that allowed it to happen. Self-preservation. I can't stand it. See, if it's motivated, if it's motivated by greed or anger, right? I'd say, okay. But it was your job to look after that person's grandmother, it was your job to look after that person's father. And you turned a blind eye. You know, everyone got outraged when they'd see an orderly, right? Or someone at a nursing home beating the shit out of an old person. Out oh, there, they? That's so disgusting. They're so weak, you know? And those people shouldn't be in those situations because we all know that when people age and they come to that point, they act like babies, right? One, because they're too proud and they're adults. And two, because literally bodies fail and you act childish, right? Because you're, you know, just, just disturbed that you're in that position. You're like, I used to walk so tall. I used to walk so strong and now I need help. Right? So they, it's, it's a very difficult environment to work in, in nursing homes because you have to want to help these people, right? The same people that are good with kids, like genuinely good are the same people that would be genuinely good with the elderly period. So, you know, I, I've always expressed my, loathing and why I would say just torch the whole place down just like Sodom and Gomorrah just get rid of it on self-preservation and now I understand why because I probably if I remembered that would have been a very different type of autist <laughs> right very different type so I will speak about that more because when I speak about it, I want to nail the people behind it that that caused it. But the people that allowed it, I mean, you can have their names on a platter. They all work for these places. So let me share this uh, whistleblower video from these physicians that say a lot of things we've talked about too. Hello, and welcome to Coronavirus Whistleblower, a special report here on Real America's Voice, I'm David Oliver. So think back a moment to March of 2020. We were all hit with the news of a worldwide pandemic and something called the coronavirus or COVID-19. None of us knew much about the virus or certainly how our lives would change almost overnight. But much has been learned about the virus and treatments now since those first days of the pandemic. And we're sharing information in this special that you perhaps 
haven't heard before. In the next hour, you'll hear inside perspective on what some say is the dark truth about COVID-19 and the care and treatment that patients are receiving. Real America's Voice correspondent April Moss is up first with our interview with two doctors who are breaking their silence. Almost two years have passed since the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted millions. As Americans were told to shelter in place 15 days to slow the spread, today we're facing a loss of personal freedoms as medical tyranny sweeps across the world. Thousands of Americans are being coerced into receiving an experimental product or face being let go from their jobs, denied entry to their universities, or be subjected to weekly testing and forced masking. The media perpetuated the fear of a virus with a 99.8% survival rate while censoring doctors who spoke of the known cures and effective treatments. Tonight, two doctors from Michigan speak out for the first time about the corruption inside the Henry Ford health system. First, we examine the origins of the coronavirus and Anthony Fauci's role. Since 1999, the, uh, they've been working on... Uh, the coronavirus and manipulating it. Um, in 2002, um, Dr. Uh, Fauci and the NAID um, gave uh, a grant to um, University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to um, Dr. Ralph Barrick to work on the coronavirus to get it to infect human lung tissue. And this was in 2002, 2003, the SARS hit in Asia, in China. Dr. Um, or David, um, David Martin, David Martin uh, reviewed the patents from the beginning. In 1999, I think uh, IBM digitized all the patents. So he was able to review in detail what was going on with the coronavirus. They've had over 4,000 patents that the CDC, NIH, uh, NIAID uh, has uh, gotten patents on. Specifically, 125 of them relate to three regions, the spike protein. The other part of it is the uh, ACE2 receptors. This virus was not a natural virus. And if you look at the data that, uh, Dr., uh, th that David uh, Martin has presented, is that all the uh, manipulation of this virus has resulted in what we have been dealing with for the past 20 years. The coronavirus itself has not been the original coronavirus for over 20 years. In 2011, the NIH got involved in, in the gain of function. In 2011, uh, I'm sorry, 2014, the uh, government put a ban on gain of function because they were worried that there might be a pandemic. You already knew this. So in 2014, the NIH took the virus and did the work outside in China, in Wuhan, China. And Dr. Fauci has been involved in this gain of function for decades. He's been supporting it. He came into uh, the NIAID, National uh, Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, in 1984. He has given over $50 billion in grants, in research, much of it is in the field of gain of uh, function. So in 2014, when they went outside the country to continue the research, the money was actually funneled through um, Eco Health Alliance that Dr. Peter Daszak is in control of. 
he's been in charge of uh, um, the gain of function as well. And, and uh, Ralph Barrick of uh, University of North Carolina has been uh, friends uh, and a colleague of the Batwoman who runs the Wuhan lab. So this virus has never been a natural virus. It has been a virus that has been manipulated and we have what we have today. It's a, as a result of the manipulation by these different labs, whether it's uh, University of North Carolina or, or any other entities, they're all over. Dr. Vela spent 32 years practicing internal medicine at the Henry Ford Health System. He began to notice a change in his company's daily communications at the start of spring 2020. I graduated from medical school in 1989. Um, I did my immediately started my residency at Henry Ford Hospital in 1989 in internal medicine. I graduated in 1992 and I immediately went to work for Henry Ford uh, Health System in 1992. So I've been working uh, as a staff physician since 1992. Uh, that's 29 years, roughly, uh, more than 29 years. But uh, my hire date is actually 1989 with the system. So I've been with the system for over 32 years. And Dr. Vella, when did you start to see that there was a problem with Henry Ford Health System and the way that they were um, communicating to physicians on how they should treat patients? Um, I just saw a, a rhetoric coming out through the um, the newsletters from the executives um, that uh, was kind of a groupthink mentality um, and uh, really painting a picture that the sky is falling. Uh, more of a it, you'd have to read these um, these newsletters and these uh, morning posts, which were daily. Uh, newsletters to the gen, uh, to the um, to the general staff of the health system, um, and um, they were less of a rhetoric of of informing and educating, and more of a rhetoric of um, persuasion is is how I would put it. I do a lot of reading, and uh, it was clearly a groupthink type of rhetoric when you read the the paragraphs and what they're trying to say. Um, it, it wouldn't take you uh, too long to read a couple of these newsletters and just and just understand uh, what I'm talking about. How it's one narrative, um, the sky is falling, um, and so forth. Now, this morning post that you're referring to uh, used to be just just pretty much very normal type of rhetoric for uh, internal employees. But yeah. you said there was a defining moment that you really noticed the change in uh, the way that these um, newsletters were being written about. Can you tell me about when you noticed, about the timeline, when you noticed the change in the rhetoric? Um, it would be in the heart of the pandemic, I would say, in, in the uh, spring of 2020. Uh, you know, prior to that time, the newsletter was always general stories, you know, and they'd be maybe feel-good stories or whatever, but very neutral. But once the pandemic hit, um, it was really, you know, just a, a one-sided narrative um, there wasn't mention of any uh, treatment, outpatient treatment, despite uh, studies coming out. For example, the Henry Ford study showing hydroxychloroquine showed a 50% drop uh, in, uh, in mortality. Um, and that study was out by, um, definitely hit the press by July 2nd. I have an article on that, July 2nd, 2020. Dr. Talia is a hospital physician who worked at Henry Ford Hospital in West Bloomfield during the pandemic. He faced multiple battles with the hospital's protocol and shares with us his fight to treat patients with ivermectin. 
I'm a hospital-based physician, otherwise known as a hospitalist. I take care of patients uh, that get admitted to the hospital on behalf of physicians that don't go to the hospital. I take care of them, and then when I'm done, uh, send them back to their doctors. Tell me about the difference between a drug that is <clears throat> approved for human use but not necessarily approved for something like COVID-19. Explain that. Explain that process because this is a fairly common thing that doctors are allowed to prescribe off-market, correct? Correct. Off-label. Off off-label medicines if they think that it could help their patients. Well, probably 25% or more of the drugs that are out there, if you look at them, they are used for multiple purposes, but that's not what they were patented for. Usually, if you have a antidepressant, and then you see that it has other beneficial effects, doctors will use it for that. I mean, there's antidepressants that some doctors will prescribe to just help people sleep because a side effect of it is that it causes sedation. So they will put them on it, but it doesn't mean that you can't use it. It's usually the drug that is prescribed or that is patented, it's usually one indication, but it can be used for multiple indications and you can use it outside of those boundaries. Let's move on to talking about <clears throat> Fauci's involvement and specifically his push <laughs> on the hospital system to use remdesivir. Well, <clears throat> remdesivir was actually tried um, in the latter, I think 2017, 2018, around there. They used it to see if it would work on the Ebola virus in the Congo. Um, study was um, supported by NIH and uh, NIAID, Dr. Fauci's entity. And in that one, the remdesivir was used, was used along with uh, three other drugs to see if it was beneficial. But the, the trial was supposed to go for a year, but it was stopped because remdesivir actually caused over 50% of the deaths. So they pulled it off. Remdesivir, it causes of the severe side effects. It causes um, hypotension, acute renal failure, um, multi-organ system failure, and septic shock. So even with those indications, that's the only drug that uh, Dr. Fauci said should be used in all the hospitals. And more than likely, that is the drug that is causing the death of many of these patients. It's not so much the COVID. They blame it on the COVID because COVID could do the same thing, but there's no way of knowing, but they still use it every day. On every patient that walks into the hospital that's had the infection for less than 10 days, and especially if they're on oxygen, they're put on steroids and they're put on remdesivir. In November of last year, the World Health Organization issued a conditional recommendation against the use of remdesivir in hospitalized patients with COVID, regardless of the severity of their illness. The reason, the World Health Organization said, there is no evidence that remdesivir improves survival and other outcomes in those COVID patients. Now, ironically, the two doctors in our special worked for the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, which published a study last summer that showed the drug hydroxychloroquine cut the death rate significantly in sick patients hospitalized with COVID-19. When we come back, April Moss returns with new perspective on COVID-19 
vaccines versus natural immunity if you've had the virus. Also on the way, Dr. Vela shares personal stories of patients he has treated who had severe reactions after taking the COVID vaccine. You're watching Coronavirus Whistleblowers. Stay with us. So that was aired today on Steve Bannon's show. Thank you, Steve. See, um, I had, let me play this. If you just look at the list of executive orders, don't listen to the news. Don't look at what he did or what laws were passed through Congress. But look through the executive orders. You will understand what's coming for 2019. So we all knew, for example, right, let's start there, that in 2016, uh, there was election meddling and uh, the president issued a an executive order in 2017, and that's Executive Order 13799. He issued it in May of 2017. And it's called Establishment of Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Now, he created a commission for election integrity, which was um, created in order, obviously, to see the fall. First of all, let's talk about who headed it and who were members. So the vice president shall chair the commission, which won't have more than 15 people. And the president is the one that's going to appoint the other 15 people, right? The, the other people aside from the vice president, which will include, you know, uh, as he says, uh, people that know about elections, election management, fraud detection, et cetera. The whole purpose of this executive order was to ensure and identify the laws, rules, and policies um, of how to um, ensure that they can instill some sort of, as I would say, confidence in the way we vote in federal elections, right? Because there's a lot of talk. Then, uh, according to, according to this um, EO, um, he would also like to identify what undermines the people's confidence in the integrity of the voting process. And then the vulnerabilities in voting systems and practices used for federal elections. So he also went to define what improper voter registration means, where an individual does not possess the legal right to vote in a jurisdiction is included as an eligible voter. The term improper voting means the act of the individual casting a non-provisional ballot in a jurisdiction. And the term for fraudulent uh, voter registration, which means in the situation where an individual knowingly and intentionally takes steps to add ineligible individuals to voters list. And then fraudulent voting means the act of casting a non-provisional ballot or multiple ballots with knowledge that casting the ballot or the ballots is illegal. Okay? So that's what he did. He said the commission shall terminate 30 days after it submits its report to the president. That's when it terminates. And he outlined the, you know, federal provision. So we have this electoral commission that, um, you know, pretty much reports to the president. Uh, and it's head by the vice president. Now, everybody keeps saying that there is a report on uh, election fraud and um, what that entails. 
But I'm going to draw your attention to things that fly under the radar that nobody really talks about again. Because then that would be telling you what's really going on. And I've known about this, but obviously it wasn't the time to talk about it. But since everyone's so hot on the topic, I thought I'd guide people to where you can actually find information. Now, President Trump, on January 3rd, 2018, issued an executive order. Executive Order 13820. This order was to revoke... Executive Order 13799 that was issued on May 11, 2017. So basically, he hereby revokes the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, and it's accordingly terminated. And if you remember correctly, the previous executive order said, 30 days before, after I get my report, this will be terminated. So if it's January 3rd, 2018, that it was terminated, that would mean he had the results in December, on December, by December 3rd of 2017, not 2018. Because a lot of people have emailed me, texted me, yeah, 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 we're waiting on that. We haven't seen it. Well, the thing is, the president has, and it was over a year ago. So the fact that the news cycle is telling you now that there was a report out at the end of November that was to be issued or the beginning of December, they're a year late. Again, a year late. When I say that we have the most transparent presidency, it is in fact so. The mainstream media, including all those conservative talking heads too, obviously don't understand or don't listen to the president because they're more concerned about beating to the drum globally at the same time. So we have to understand that this report has already landed in our president's hands over a year ago. He already knows how and what. And this is why during the elections, the midterms that we had this year, we were able to identify election fraud. Nothing is of chance. Nothing just happens. And like I've said many, many times, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm giving you the tools to think and create your own, uh, um, yield your own conclusions. Because we are people that have the ability to make our own decisions, not others make them for us. So here you have the Federal Register that will tell you exactly what he's been doing in 2018, how he's been doing it in 2018, and what he's going to be doing in 2019. Now, obviously, there goes half an hour. Jeez, how fast did that go? Okay, so uh, in the next half hour, we're going to be talking about this article that Politico recycled. I tweeted about it December 22nd. They recycled it again. Again, inferring that this case has to do with Donald Trump or 
they're also implying that it has to do with the Mueller investigation. And I'm here to tell you it does not. That is super fake news. Has nothing to do with that. And we've talked about this. We already know what it has to do with. But we'll continue that after the break. So until then, I want you to just think what you heard in the first half hour because going forward, this recap into 2018 and intro into what's going to happen for 2019 will all make perfect sense to you. So that's where I was going with this is that you just need to focus on who the president is and who he's pulling with him. And his uh, identity as a person is very well reflected in his family. His family can tell you exactly what kind of man he is. His family is the picture of that. Now let's um, keep that in mind for a second while I move on to the final segment of this show, which is great. We don't have any breaks, so it'll be like a full 30 minutes. That's pretty awesome. Where we can talk about what to expect starting tomorrow. And I'll be here. I'll be here on New Year's Day, 12 to 2 Eastern time. Because I'm expecting a lot of things to happen. So let's just start with our president's amazing tweets today. So that way we get an indication of what's to come tomorrow. Because like I said, very transparent president. All you have to do is look at his executive orders, read his tweets, listen to him when he speaks, and you will be able to understand what's happening. So six hours ago, he said, an all-concrete wall was never abandoned, as has been reported by the media. Some areas will be all-concrete, but the experts at Border Patrol prefer a wall that is see-through, thereby making it possible to see what's happening on both sides. Makes sense to me. And also, just uh, going down to it, you know those pokey steel fences? Uh, You know, with the little pokey things where they could see through that picture he tweeted? That was a pretty good idea because you know how far down they go? Pretty difficult to build tunnels, too. So his next tweet right after that was, if anybody but Donald Trump did what I did in Syria, which was an ISIS-loaded mess when I became president, they would be a national hero. ISIS is mostly gone. We're slowly sending our troops back home to be with their families, while at the same time fighting ISIS remnants. I campaigned on getting out of Syria and other places. Now when I start getting Uh, out the fake news media or some failed generals who were unable to do the job before I arrive like to complain about me and my tactics, which are working, just doing what I said I was going to do. Okay. So talking about border security, they're trying to say, oh, he's not doing a wall. He's abandoned it because, you know, unfortunately, we're starting to see that his own camp is filled with people that are not really in his camp. Kind of like I've said it before, and people may trash me for it for saying it live on air, but Mark Levin is a, you know, Ted Cruz bootlicker. He even banned me from his Facebook when I called him out when he started to trash President Trump during the uh, primaries. And he's a never Trumper in disguise. To literally be belittled by people 
he is trying to help. And also, by the, oh, the, by the people that acknowledged his sacrifice, to be told he's not doing it fast enough. So this New Year's Day, I urge everyone to remember that change does not happen overnight. Because when foundations have been laid for over a hundred years, with a two-decade plan of a rollout, you have to think, this can't happen overnight. We just can't. This new year, we should be very grateful that we still have a, a man in office willing and proud to have sacrificed all these things for us and acknowledge that change cannot happen overnight. And the past two years were simply, simply the prelude and the preparation for change. Like I said yesterday on my show, we're going to see a lot of resignations. And yesterday, the last day of 2018, we saw two very important resignations, two groups, I guess, because two locations. So we had the spokesperson for the Pentagon resign. And we also had the spokespeople for the Vatican resign. And one of them that was there used to be a Fox News correspondent. And they were fired or resigned pretty quickly. It's funny how they became spokespeople. And shortly after, all this is coming out of what's going on in the Catholic churches. Who knows? Maybe they were fired for trying to save children. Who knows? Nobody knows. All we do know is that we're seeing a lot of resignations and a lot of changes throughout the world. 2019 is going to be that year where we see the change. Where we will see things so incredible that all of us that have been waiting for years, decades, or just months... To see something happen, actually see it happen and still can't believe it's happening. Because when people realize just how big this war is, so big you can't fathom it. And I thought today being the new year, we could touch upon that. Because for some reason, we believe that Russia is the enemy. They're not. We believe that North Korea is the enemy. They're not. It's the D.C. mafia who believe, and the globalists, who believe that they're smarter than those that have for centuries commanded a big portion of land on this planet with ultimate control. That nation that has built the wall that you can see from space. And for those of you that don't know, I had the experience to learn what it's like to try to do business in China during an assignment. So that was my New Year's show to tell you 
when I showed you from 2019, how the things have evolved to be exactly as stated. The problem that we have is people do not pay attention. In 2019, the plan to deploy this weaponized flu from China happened. China, China, China. And artificial intelligence has penetrated every facet of your life and it was kicked off in 2019 and you didn't even see it. Tori, you should have said it. Well, at that time, there were only like a couple thousand people listening, right? And so you wonder, well, you had all this knowledge and obviously anyone listening that knew something knew you knew what you were talking about. Why would they deter or why would they silence you? Because like I said at the beginning of my New Year's Eve episode that I played a clip of, they were upset that he wasn't getting shit done fast enough. Because the one thing in war is that you don't tell other people who is doing what, when they're doing something, and how they're going to do it. They find out your methods and capabilities. You're fucked. They can make you. They could say, I saw you hanging out with XYZ. And it's like, yeah, so picture opportunity. So you got me. I was there visiting. I could say whatever the fuck I want, right? It's like when you see people, oh, so-and-so was in a picture with that person. And it's like, so? So, people take pictures with people. Guilty by association is not okay. But capabilities, right? It's like someone saying, Tori, you were totally eavesdropping on that group of people. I totally know. And you're the one that leaked the information. It's like, who said I speak Kazaki? Have you ever heard me speak Kazaki? Well, you did mention, yeah, but did you hear me? Maybe I was just talking shit. Did you hear me? But you know, I did. <laughs> they wouldn't know, right? I'm just saying, this is an example. Not, not a real one. This is a parallel one. This is an example. So, capabilities are demonstrated by methods. Methods demonstrate your capabilities. There are many people that are kinetic, that are smart warlike strategies. And what they do is they feel that they understand everything. They get very boisterous and uh, cocky. And when they don't understand something, <laughs> they tend to watch it. But the last thing any operation wants is a mass of people fucking shit up. And, and the thing is, it's because they make deals behind closed doors. See, all nations do that, right? And all losers do that. You know when you bust someone, right? When you bust someone, you uh, you sit down and you're like, yo, two-finger Johnny, you will not go to jail if you give me these people. 
And I won't associate you with those heinous crimes because I know all you did was serve them bread and look the other way, which is still being a piece of shit. But let's cut this deal. And so Johnny, Two Fingers Johnny, you know, gets stripped from his job, right? Maybe gets a book deal, right? And he hands over some information. And maybe, you know, buys a house in New Zealand or something. And when you see that, you know, you're just like, ah, and it's like, stop. That's the way the system works. Fuck the system. See, when people make deals, right, then you don't fix the problem. You don't fix the problem. So this is where, you know, people come out of the woodwork and they're like, nah, man, that's fucked up. No, you need to show the truth, the whole truth. And nothing but the truth, no fucking deals. Yet, here we go. Well, you know, they got us in a vulnerable position right now, and they did this. It's because you fucked up, because you thought you were smarter. You thought that they got this fucking far with a whole nation and had the whole world fuck every single human being on the planet. And you think you were smarter than them? Ha. Well, well, then maybe. You're going to get in trouble for that. Not so much because you were, your intention was good, but it wasn't. It was all about you. It was a good intention, like, you know, like Benedict Arnold, when, when he, you know, won the wars, he did it just because, you know, before he turned, right? He did it because General Washington would be like, oh my God, good boy. Here's metal. Yay. You're like super hot. You're super this. And then it's like, he decided, well, fuck that. I'm that good. You know, I'm going to do it my way and I need to cut a deal with the crown and acknowledge this line and I want people to be safe. We don't need any more murders. We don't need any more of this, right? So, so I'm going to do what I think is best because Mr. Washington, you're just fucking shit up and people are going to get hurt. And it's like, it's war. People are going to get hurt. So this is actually playing out right now. It's been playing out. Okay. It's been playing out right now. You have the president and his secret plan of liberation. You've got good people that were in his camp that were like, yeah, let's liberate. But then they were like, no, we could do deals. You know, I've done this for a living. We could do deals. We got other people saying, nah, man, this is just way too big. What the hell? You're so wrong. We need to do it like this, right? They didn't even trust the fact that God has a plan. They did not. And then there was this other camp that was like, oh, okay, well, you know what? I mean, what they're doing is good, but it's not going to make us any money. And I mean, what if we trick the other side to work with us and then the other side works with us and we cut a deal and then we get in and we infiltrate them. And it's like, no, nah, man, you're already dirty. You fucked up. And then there's the evil camp, right? The camp that's like, let me infiltrate and do this infiltration via an invasion. And that's it. And then in comes this fucking hippo, right, that walks right through all the fucking groups and says, okay, fuck all of you, except for you, Mr. Trump. You could sit there. Um, you don't talk for any of these millions of people right there. T take a look, turn around, look over there. Yep, right there. They said no. 
this is just a story. It's not based on a true story, I guess. So I'm just, you know, embellishing <clears throat> and um, batting to it. <laughs> okay. So and it comes and it like trashes shit, like freaking bull in a china cabinet. Knocks out this, knocks out that. And it's like, no, nah, man, look, there's a million. But you see that dust storm over there? That storm's approaching and those are feet and they're marching right through you and it's not going to happen. So chaos. And that's what we saw. So with that chaos, as it was happening slowly, very slowly, though, you know, those feet were pretty far away. You needed binoculars. Okay. At that time, the people in control were like, you know what? Fuck this. Let's pull the trigger. I mean, everyone is bowing down to us. This is why we negotiated all those deals with all these movie companies. Make the, uh, make us look good. You have to make us look good. If you're making a movie, oh, we need to look good. Dead serious. You'll see that in the docuseries. So you were caught in the middle of a pissing match between, uh, I want to call it a spectrum of good. Right? Can I say that? A spectrum of good? Pieces of shit that are evil, going to evil pieces of shit, but they have morals. They won't do the, the kid thing. But adults, fair game, right? Pieces of shit that are okay with people doing it, right? And it's just they're not their cup of tea, but they know about it. And they're kind of sick about it, but they're like, whatever. And then, you know, the evil people that are kind of good because they feel guilty, you know, it's like, uh. And then it's, you know, like the Feinsteins, right, that know about all that shit. They don't fuck with that shit, but they're like, okay, I'll take a Chinese spy. Sure. And then, you know, you go up on the scale of good and good, you know, getting better and better and better. <laughs> Trump's not even on that fucking scale. He's like out in a league on his own. People are you're glorifying him. No, he's one man. One man, and he lost everything. If I knew that the Trump Hotel in D.C. was on sale, I would have crowdfunded to own that bitch. I'm just saying. We would have owned it. It would have been the People's Hotel. <laughs> and that hotel, all the profit that came out would have been funding fucking Trump in every endeavor, but whatever. Anyway, he lost a lot. So he's out of the league. And in that fight is like all these leaders, these people that you have propped up, right? And others have maybe earned their spot, you know, maybe they wrote this great book or they achieved this scientific whatever, or they won a war and they got like medals and shit, right? But they've been propped up, propped up on your shoulders, propped up on your backs, some of them stole your backs. They're like, fuck you. You're taking me on your piggyback. Don't care if you have a bad back. You're carrying my ass, you know? Um, so now we're at this point where you just can't stop the information from coming in. You have a president that has embarrassed us on a global scale that has drawn that line to push that revolution. Look at the line that he keeps pushing back. People that were telling you that you need to go out and protest and you need to show up in numbers. We need to go out and be loud. We need to be so-and-so for Trump, so-and-so for Trump. We need to push for this. We need to push for that. When from day one, the only thing we needed to do was be in the courts correctly. And then those people that we had taking us to the courts, 
We're there with good intentions and surrounded by snakes. Cause, and snakes in like lavish sheep clothing. They wanted good. They wanted the outcome to destroy that evil, but they wanted it to do it on their terms. And filing the right lawsuit, creating the right company, doing your paperwork correctly, filing and having standing, you know, all that stuff. Would have fucked up their idea of what they think a victory is. Because they were that pissed off, that blinded, that they didn't see that they were doing the same exact thing. Self-sabotage. And now in this past year, you are at the forefront. You, the people, are at the forefront. You've pushed lawsuits. You've pushed letters. You've gotten all that done because you've been taking action. I urge you to take a step back because I even see a lot of people sharing things and saying, oh my God, stop. You're the boss now. You're in charge now. No one, no one. Don't let anyone tell you different. You know, you had all the information. As you see, we've had all this information. They've propped up pedophiles. They've taken our money. Now they're putting their hands in our money. Now they're changing the way our money looks. They're minimizing it. They're giving a, a, an unbelievable debt on our head. You know, today I went to Home Depot and I needed to get like a thing for the tree, like a funnel thing. They were out, right? So that I can water it. And um, because I want to put a skirt on it and it's like, how am I going to get the water on it? Right. Um, and the guy was like, yeah, I can't find this. Nah, nah, nah. And then I was like, hey, how much is that? And it was like a space heater. Um, and, I, you know, that takes a propane tank. And he was like $169. I was like, what? I bought the same one. Eight and yeah, prices went up. Fuck. Yeah. Thanks, Biden. He's like, everybody keeps saying it's his fault. And I was like, if you don't think it's his fault, something's wrong with you. Right. You know, there's so much burden on the people and it's like they're at the point where if the wrong thing happens, they snap, right? Like a twig. They just, they can't. And that's where it can get really, really ugly and we don't need it. It's going to get bloody, but not because we're going to take arms yet if we continue the way we're going. But people will come. Oh, it's going to be bad. You know, those two doctors, they came out. They didn't come out. Now, why'd they come out now, you should ask? Because they know they're going down. They know they can't hide it. It's not a conscious thing because they could have spoken up earlier. The remdesivir in Wuhan. See, I had mentioned, oh, there's only two cures that seem promising. Hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, right? Now, remdesivir was used in a variety of viruses. But at the time when I made the statement, the study in Wuhan was not published yet as terminated. And so revisiting and revisiting, I was noticing the hospitals. So I've been working on this for a very long time. I was noticing the hospitals where they were executing the experiments. And I urge you for those that can see that information, right? Go and find out how many deaths of patients you've had in hospital, in one of those hospitals that conducted the trials from remdesivir. Look at the COVID deaths and ask them if they applied the COVID protocol by the CDC, which is a remdesivir owned by Fauci, of course. 
And Fauci, who owns the patent, actually had his wife's NIH fund the study in China to apply it to coronavirus, which I was quite shocked that the doctors didn't mention, especially if they're coming out now and speaking about it now. Because what they said is that they applied it for Ebola in the Congo, right? Ebola that I've been talking about and disease X that I've been talking about that they can't find the cure, but they kind of find the cure and they didn't find the cure and they want it to apply. So the question is, the doctors are talking about the experiment in Congo that killed 50 people because of Ebola. But remember, this is a different virus. Why not talk about the studies of rendesimir that they actually deployed in 2020? Why not talk about the fact that we all know that when a study is terminated, you don't terminate a study because, oh yeah, so we stopped studying the drug because we got the disease under control. That's not how it works, right? When you're studying the drug, regardless if an outbreak is done or not, COVID is here forever, isn't it? So you're still continuing the study. No, they pulled it. So the question is, why aren't they talking about remdesivir and the tests and the deaths that happened in 2020? That's the question you should be asking yourself. The information is there. Just like Jeffrey Epstein and his, you know, Airbus moving around kitties from Palm Beach Airport to the Dominican fucking Republic on the Fonjules Airport, the fuckers that have been funding both parties. Why didn't nobody ask that question? Why didn't anybody? So they come forward now and talk about remdesivir, but they only talk about the Congo. They don't talk about all the people that have died during the deployment of that study in 2020. Think of all the doctors that have killed. We've, we've heard the story of my, of my listener, Annette, who was killed. We heard the story of that juggernaut, right, of Alicia's husband who was killed. Did they have a choice? Was the drug approved? Was it still under clinical trial? The clinical trials in China would terminate. Why would they terminate? Oh, because they got it under control. Fuck that. That's not how, that's not how testing goes. Why was, why did other countries withdraw? Oh yeah, it was under control. Fuck that. You never end a study because something's under control. You already have your enrolled patients. You're not taking any more. Again, when people give you that information, you have to sit and think and say, why? This is why I said, thank you, Steve. And all of you are like, Steve, it's not Steve. Leave it. You'll see. The issue that we have is we brought up remdesivir. We walk through the clinical trials, NIH clinical trials. We saw it was withdrawn. We saw we funded it. We saw it was made protocol. We know Fauci's involved with the patent. And yet you've got people fighting for you. Who's fighting for you? Tell me who's fighting for you. Why hasn't anyone shot this up? If they have a platform, why haven't they talked about it? Exactly. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a damn if you die or not. So who's going to talk about it? We are. You write the letter. You find on that website if the hospital in your neighborhood tested remdesivir. You have the right to ask him if the hospital implemented a protocol of remdesivir throughout the COVID pandemic from the beginning to the end. And you have the right to demand those details because they obtain federally funded, they get federal tax dollars. So once you get those answers, you'll be quite surprised to see what you get. You collect all of that in your little state rooms, and then you easily file a suit and sue the fuck out of them for getting tax deductions while manipulating and enriching themselves or doing whatever. You have to see 
hmm, did they get any special funds to apply it from the CDC? You know, kind of like the schools got money for the masks. Not every single hospital enforced it, but those hospitals didn't allow alternative treatments, violated also another act. What was that called again? That's right. The right to fucking try. The right to try was passed under Trump. And that law was not upheld. That was passed. Which means that you have the right to experimental studies, that you can bypass blah, 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 blah. Your insurance can't say no. So why would a doctor tell you you're not allowed to select your treatment if you have the right to try? These are just questions that you should ask, ask yourself. Desivere, the cure. <laughs> the cure is you. This all stops the minute you stand up. And many of you are standing up. But let me just show you how things are happening. So interesting. Let, let me shift gears and show you how things are actually happening. Let me pull this up. Well, another week and a few more Democrats answer the question about retirement. But this week was a little different. It's not just any other Democrat announcing retirement. It was a committee chair. Now, I look in this room. A lot of you have been here for a long time. You know, it's different when a committee chair announces retirement. When Mr. DeFazio announced, and when you look at the um, rationale between he and the budget chair, they say the exact same thing I say. They're not going to be in the majority the next time. I can't blame him for announcing retirement. But he is now the 19th Democrat to announce retirement. Put that in perspective. In the year of 2010, when Democrats lost 63 seats, 17 Democrats announced retirement. They've already surpassed that. I don't know if we're allowed to bet, but I'll bet any of you lunch that number will be higher before the year ends or before the filing ends next year. Now, some of the rationale why they want to retire, it's just it's been disastrous Congress. What have they achieved? In the last 12 months, what have they been able to do with one party rule? Their $5 trillion socialist spending bill is unpopular with the American public. In fact, it is so unpopular, you don't have to take the Republicans' words for it. Just look to their own conference. Congresswoman Loria from Virginia, you know what she recently said? She admitted she even avoids bringing it up when she's back home. The leadership says they just need to get out and explain it more. And she says she avoids even talking about it. House Democrats, now they released their calendar for next year. Very exciting action taking place this week. They scheduled the least number of voting days in modern history. If you take next year and this year, it'll be 202 days. That's the least amount that we've been able to do in the last decade. When Republicans were in the majority, I think we were averaging about 250. Now, should we be upset about that or should we be relieved? If they're here less, maybe they could do less damage. Not sure. Now. So if Democrats are resigning, that means that rhinos are rising. This is what we see. 19 of them. So that would be they'd lose about 90 seats. About 90 seats. That's what it would be. Now, while all of us are upset and filing, the propaganda 
for your child's mind is rising. Here's how it is. Peanuts in it? No, there are no peanuts in the vaccine. Is there fish in it? There are not fish in it. Is it like lint in it? No, there is not lint in it either. You're good. My name is Lee Savio Beers. I'm a pediatrician. This woman will be tried. Will be tried. Will be tried. That's what they need to do is put them all on fucking trial. This is what they're doing to your kids. These stupid videos and things like this. What's up, y'all? It's Megan Stallion. Ariana Grande and Jimmy Fallon. Y'all know what time it is. It's time to get those boosters. <laughs> Not as horrible as what? The fact that they have a woman that licked a donut and called everyone peons as, uh, you know, someone important that we should listen to. Remember, that's what Ariana Grande did. She licked a donut and put it back because those are peasants. They'll probably love her donut with her spit on it. 
But this woman, disgusting. Nutrition and the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I'm going to be joined today by some kids who have questions about the COVID-19 vaccine for kids ages 5 to 11. So do you know about the the COVID-19 vaccine? I know it's something that helps your body develop antibodies that can fight different kinds of viruses. You know a lot about it. I'm impressed. Yeah, that's great. Are you going to grow up and be a scientist? Maybe. Yeah, you do a great job at it. So I just don't understand. How did we first think of having a vaccine for COVID? That's a really good question. You know, you have gotten vaccines against a lot of other illnesses, too. Did you know that? Yeah, I only remember the flu shot. That's all I remember. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the other ones you got when you were a baby. And so when we learned about COVID and we knew how serious it was, we thought, well, gosh, you know, vaccines are the best way to keep people from getting infections. So what if we could have a vaccine against COVID, then everybody could could be much, much safer. And then we had some really, really smart scientists who had been working on this kind of thing for a long time. And they said, oh, I think we can do this. And they did it. And now they have. Now we have it. Is it safer to put up my friends if I'm vaccinated? Oh, you know what? It is. And it's so important. I can't even. This is what they're telling children. This is propaganda. <laughs> Need not to tell you. And the docu-series is going to have one episode dedicated to that catchy song, Get in Line for a Booster, and talks with children with masks, convincing them to take a shot that they have no idea how that's going to work on them. And you know what? They really don't care because it's science. And I'll leave you with this today found a fantastic video that provokes thought. I don't agree with everything that's in there, but it's actually thought-provoking, and that's what we do. We actually think. We don't get told. We think. It's actually one giant prison. What of this world is actually one giant prison? When a 19th century philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, observed the amount of pain that we experience during our lifetimes, he concluded that it's not happiness and pleasure we're after, but a reduction of the ongoing suffering that's an inherent part of existence. When looking through the grim lens of Schopenhauer's philosophy as he compares this world to a prison, or more specifically, to a penitentiary, we start to see some astounding similarities. As is the case with prison, no one in general chooses to be here. We can't leave until our sentence ends, or unless we end it ourselves. We're limited by the walls of time closing in on us as each day brings us closer to death. And within the confines of our limitations, we generally experience a stream of suffering, tragedy, worry and misery. We desperately go from one pleasure to another just to experience temporary relief from pain. In the process, the organisms that inhabit the earth, driven by what Schopenhauer called will to live, feed on each other in an attempt to survive, just so they can prolong their miserable lives a bit longer. Like prison gangs, the species of the world are entangled in a continual war for dominance. Eat or be eaten seems to be nature's order when we look at how plants, as well as certain animals, only serve as food for other animals who themselves succumb to the destructive presence of human beings. 
humanity in turn, while exploiting its own members and draining its natural habitat of resources, falls prey to some kind of disease or disaster. When we remove the veil of ignorance and behold the harsh reality we live in, we might start to question, as Schopenhauer does, the idea that, I quote, this world is the successful work of an all-wise, all-good, and at the same time, all-powerful being, end quote. For Schopenhauer's view of the world is one of agony, devoid of divine grace, and it has much more in common with a penal colony than with the creation of a benevolent deity. Now, seeing the world as a prison sounds like a recipe for personal misery. Why not adopt a more positive, more hopeful perspective? Why look at it with such pessimism? Well, Schopenhauer's idea comes with a twist. Within this pessimistic worldview lies an outlook that could be very beneficial to humanity. Based on his essay on the sufferings of the world, this video explores Schopenhauer's pessimistic outlook on life and reveals a secret to be gained from it. Schopenhauer stated that, as opposed to what many people think, not pleasure, but pain, is the positive element of existence. He argued that evil is what makes its existence felt, and is, by way of that, positive. Good, on the other hand, is negative. It is but the removal of a disturbance. The state of happiness and contentment is nothing more than a desire fulfilled, or the end of some state of pain. So the experience of pain is the source of our desires and needs. Hunger, for example, is a state of discomfort, which has the potential of becoming painful that leads us to desiring food. Thus, eating is not a positive experience, as it's only considered pleasurable because it fulfills a desire that is derived from pain, or a sense of lack. According to Schopenhauer, pain far outweighs pleasure in this world, and the pleasure we incur is often less pleasurable than we expected, while pain is much more painful. We only have to look at an animal who is eating another animal and compare the pleasure of eating with the pain of being eaten to decide which one of the two outweighs the other. Schopenhauer not only calls life a disappointment, but also a cheat. Life, generally, becomes more painful when we age as we experience tragedy after tragedy while we become increasingly prone to sickness and death. And even though life unfolds as a string of misfortunes, when we're still young and idealistic, the world just looks so promising. But all of our high hopes eventually erode and we end up disappointed and wretched by the hardships that have fallen upon us. We're met with insecurity, betrayal, poverty, physical pain, and possibly even loss of reason. We then realize that life isn't all rainbows and sunshine, and that happily ever afters are few and far between. The dream house, the big savings account, or the interesting social circle are no consolation for the immeasurable pain that comes with being stuck on this desolate rock of doom called Earth. If anything, the fulfillment of all that we wish for, and the continual suppression of desires by the means of pleasure lead to boredom, which is just another form of dissatisfaction. Schopenhauer's view of the world leaves no room for optimism. Life is a burden, the result of some false step, some sin of which we are paying the penalty. 
and it would have probably been better if it had never happened at all. I quote, If you try to imagine, as nearly as you can, what an amount of misery, pain and suffering of every kind the sun shines upon in its course, you will admit that it would be much better if, on the earth, as little as on the moon, the sun were able to call forth the phenomena of life, and if, here as there, the surface were still in a crystalline state. End quote. Schopenhauer compares us to lambs in a field under the eye of a butcher who decides who is going to be the next prey. Powerless over our fate, we can only wait, imprisoned by life itself, for the moment when the next misfortune washes over us. Some choose to escape this cycle of misery by checking out early. Others proceed doing what they've always done, which is consoling themselves by engaging in pleasure. And so we drink to forget about past sorrows and indulge in distractions to not be consumed by worries about the misfortunes yet to come. As prisoners, we sit out our penance and make it bearable at most by minimizing our pain. Even though it sounds gloomy, it's this reality that Schopenhauer wants us to embrace. I quote, If you want a safe compass to guide you through life and to banish all doubts as to the right way of looking at it, you cannot do better than accustom yourself to regard this world as a penitentiary, a sort of penal colony. End quote. When we look around us, we see competition, lack of tolerance, and even hatred towards individuals and groups. So, life already being difficult enough doesn't stop us from making it even more difficult for one another. We've become each other's sources of misery instead of support. We are unforgiving towards other people's evil deeds. We hate our enemies for inflicting pain upon us. We're overly critical of those who make mistakes. But isn't this animosity misplaced if, at the end of the day, the same tragic fate subjugates us all, being alive and human, and part of a world that's stacked against us and has an awful lot in common with a jailhouse? I quote, They are the shortcomings of humanity to which we belong, whose faults, one and all, we share. Yes, even those very faults, at which we now wax so indignant, merely because they have not yet appeared in ourselves. They are faults that do not lie on the surface, but they exist down there, in the depths of our nature. And should anything call them forth, they will come and show themselves, just as we now see them in others. End quote. If we accept this view of life and acknowledge that we all share the same anxieties, insecurities, grief, physical pain, and restlessness because we're part of the same miserable existence, we can regulate our expectations accordingly. Incidents that are usually looked upon as bad are nothing unusual or unexpected, but rather logical consequences of an existence based on misfortune. For example, when people are being rude to us, we can imagine how tormenting life has been to these individuals so far and see that their rudeness is to be expected and that we shouldn't take it so personally. They're prisoners, just like us, waiting for the next beating by the guards is the secret. Compassion is the ability to summon up sympathy and concern towards the sufferings or misfortunes of other people taking into account the amount of misery that life brings and the fact that no one has ever chosen to be here, we can safely say that compassion is the answer to anyone who partakes in this penitentiary.
Moreover, Schopenhauer thought that we owe compassion to our fellow human beings, as it's so essential for our well-being. From compassion flows our willingness to help each other out, our ability to accept another person's imperfections, our inclination to make this collective prison sentence more bearable, because we've chosen to alter the way we see each other, not as enemies, but as, like Schopenhauer called it, fellow sufferers. I quote, This may perhaps sound strange, but it is in keeping with the fact. It puts others in a right light, and it reminds us of that which is, after all, the most necessary thing in life, the tolerance, patience, regard, and love of neighbor, of which everyone stands in need, and which, therefore, every man owes to his fellow. So for those of you that were like, low frequency, oh my God, and turned it off, you missed the point. See, even the Bible tells us that, you know, we're supposed to come back home because we're not really home. Even the Bible, every religion talks about, you know, the primordial sin and how we are living that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't listen to perspective. Now, that's just so godless. This is just so, uh, it's like, no, 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 no. You should listen. Because the only reason you turned it off, the only reason you were upset is because you were like, shit, that fucking makes sense. Yep, it's kind of fucking like that. And that is just a perspective. It's like looking at a vase. You look at it from the top, from the bottom, from the side. But what is the message at the end of this totally pessimistic point of view? That the only way that you cure your suffrage is with compassion and love and to complete each other and be united. So no matter how you see your outlook in life, you can give up, like he said, and some people end their suffering, right? Or you can pretend that everything's just rosy and it just doesn't exist. Or you can self-pity and loathe in everything you do. But in the end, the only cure is you. If you see the other person with compassion, if you don't get angry for their misdoings, because a lot of us get angry. Like, I'm so pissed at that pediatrician. And it's like, why? She will get hers. I don't want to be her when judgment comes. Then you feel compassion. Damn. Did you just do that to yourself? Ariana Grande. Dang. Did you just do that to yourself? If we look at it like that then it's different. Then everything looks different. And you realize that only together can that cycle end. Only together if you stand up, the masks end. Only together if you stand up, the vaccines end. Only together if you stand up, the tyranny ends. And only if you stand up together can you leave the Hotel California. See, it's, it's, it's almost like a paradox, but it's not. It's clear logic. And, you know, people are like thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I do want things because I don't have things. But think of all those people that have things. They're the most twisted fucks on the planet, right? They're the ones seeking pain and snuff films, drowning themselves in coke and heroin, having sexcapades every night with someone different because they feel hollow because they're like, I have everything. 
There's nothing I need. But in fact, they needed not money, riches, and fame. They needed love that they never got because they couldn't love. You see, that's how it works. You can't have it go one way. It's a bilateral road. You give and you get. You share your love amongst each other. That's how you make things work. That is how we move forward. Not whatever story you think it is. It's uh, it's um, not the way. The way is to understand it. We're all at the Hotel California, so let's enjoy this new cover. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Had to stop for the night Then she stood in the doorway I heard the mission bell And I was thinking to myself This could be heaven or this could be hell Then she lit up a candle She showed me the way There were voices down the corridor I thought I heard them say Welcome to the Hotel California Such a lovely place Such a lovely place Plenty of room at the Hotel California Any time of year Any time of year You can find it here My mind is Tiffany Twisted she got the Mercedes Benz She got a lot of pretty, pretty boys And she calls friends How they dance in the courtyard Sweet summer sweet Some dance to remember Some dance to forget So I call up the captain Please bring me the wine he said, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. And still those voices are calling from far.